You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine, a celebration of the truly non-fungible reality in which we live. We are not numbers, we cannot be copied, and we are worth more than mere tokens. I am not my private key, and I'm not on any blockchain. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, socialite, mischief maker, and self-described starter Kenya Robinson. There are tremendous joys and challenges that come along with it, especially at this time in this place. But we all got born. Robinson will be sharing her approach to artistic provocation as a black Southern woman in a world that's still challenged by ambiguity. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. My friend Kenya Robinson is a multimedia artist and performer who explores race, gender, and ability. Her work has been everywhere. A MoMA, the Kitchen, Museum of Contemporary Diasporan Arts, museums, and universities all over the world. It's hard to convey the humanity and accessibility of her work, and not because it's so easy, but because it's just true in the purest experiential sense. And as you know by now, I don't do real interviews in this show, but I think this conversation goes a long way toward conveying the, the essence of Kenya Robinson's journey. So Kenya Robinson, you're you're an artist and international southerner mischief maker Indeed. and starter of the very greatest kind and mm-hmm. and in 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 the bio on one of those art things it said you investigate gender consumerism and ability through unexpected performative actions and sculptural gestures which I love because performative actions as opposed to performance art it's like oh actions and then instead of sculpture it's sculptural gestures which just encompasses so that could be your body it could be the way you're standing this is a sculptural gesture so one of those sculptural gestures was i suppose in response to a prompt that i want to find out what it was Mm. for this art show in canada and there's all these pictures and stuff and then there's this beautiful pink swirly lump like turban like epoxy-ish blob of cake that's that's sitting on two rectangular placemat doily things of other pink flesh-like, you know, uh, uh, Caucasian pink color. I mean, in some some circles, yes, Caucasian pink. (laughs) It's it's a Caucasian pink or Band-Aid pink. Oh, yes, Um, yes. uh, But certainly cake pink, and it's called... I was going to call it, if I knowed you was coming, but it's not, it's not, it's, it's, if I, it's actually supposed to be, if I'd known you were coming, I'd have baked you a cake. And it's I'd have, cause I love that contraction. I'm like, what? <laughs> Two contractions in one? I would have? What? Yeah. It's so crazy. And the piece is sort of like that because it's not just a cake. It's a cake that it, it's a sculpture of a cake that does to cake what I'd have does to I would have. Thank Let you. me just put it that way. I yeah. mean, you know, you know what it is. You know what it is. Yeah. You saw it. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. And anybody, anybody can go see it by searching for Kenya Robinson and cake and some words, you know, use your, use your Boolean abilities, people. Um, but it's beautiful. So what, 
can we talk about that piece? Because it's sure. just gorgeous. Sure. Um, what What was the prompt? How does that happen? Okay, so um, <laughs> when I travel, I get two kinds of books. I get sugary chiclet and or um, like self-help. Like, you know, sometimes it'll be like a, you know, how to sell or, you know, it's like something right. crazy, right? And I read Crazy Rich Asians when it first came out. Cause I mean, like, that's like chick, chick lit, you know, romantic comedy. Mm-hmm. And there's a scene in this book where they're like, ugh, they're trying to find kind of a, a minor character. And they're like, oh, he's probably somewhere watching cake sitting videos on YouTube. And I was like, what? I mean, like, 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 you babysitting the cake? You watching the cake? You- <laughs> Like, I didn't know, I had no idea what that could be referring to. So I'm like, okay, Mm -hmm. we'll go to YouTube and type in cake sitting. And then I got exposed to this whole world, this fetish world of (laughs) non cakes. (laughs) With clothes or naked? Mostly with like clothes, like they'll have on okay. like hosiery. Um, right. I mean, they're, you know, like they'll have on a course. So it's not a sex thing. It is. A, it, come on. Oh, it is. <laughs> She's sitting on a cake. It's like, it's definitely sexual. So okay. I, I like, I'm looking at this thing and it's like, it's video after video after video of the same performative action, you know, Mm. like I I was noticing that like there were people who had quite a following and, and there would be people that would give them a donation and then they would have this, you know, cake with their, the donators, the requestees, the requester, the requester's handle or whatever, like written on it. And they'd show the cake and they'd, they'd, you know, display the cake and it's all silent. Mm. There's usually, I don't think I watched any at that time with any music or anything like that. Um, but oftentimes you wouldn't see the person's head, but they would definitely be female pre- presenting and they would have on different like lingerie, corsets, whatever, but they would never be nude and they would sit on the cake and then they would they would sit on the cake and then they would like stand up and then they would do like the 360 so you see like the cake stuck to her butt right and that would be the video and i watched a number of these because i was thinking well there's got to be like something else going on in terms of like the stylings of of cake sitting right (laughs) but there wasn't now this i must have been watching this like in 2017 i was i was watching a lot of them and I was like, wait, it seems like the money shot is kind of missing. Like, why aren't you getting the shot from underneath? You know, like you could just get a right. clear IKEA chair, no promo, and like just shoot from underneath, and you could have this like like crazily abstract, but then also not. And, you know, cause it didn't mean that you couldn't have the same kind of like stand up, turn around, whatever, but like to not have that as an option just seemed like, you know, missed right. opportunity. So um, I use my power as an artist to make that happen. I, I actually, at the time was working um, in the equipment studio at the new school. And so I had access to like 
monitors and macro lenses and and lights. And so I just went over to my friend's house and we made, we baked some cakes and got a, like a clear acrylic chair and I started sitting on them. So <laughs> that's, that's where that came from. And then this is almost a post-ritual artifact. I mean, it's not a leftover from that experience, but no, no, it, I, I did, but I did get another cake and I did sit on it. And then we took a mold <laughs> of the cake that I sat on. Ah. Cause it's like, okay, we could, you know, it doesn't have to be just this thing. It could be like kind of a mirror because that's kind of like what I was thinking about, like what's in the mirror dim- dimension of this cake sitting. Mm. So, you know, i I wanted to do that sculpturally and I was able to do so with the help of a really, really talented, like basically fabricator sculptor herself, um, Vanessa Solomon, who is like worked with everybody and and somehow I stumbled upon a collaborative relationship with her too. I mean, and that is this qualifies as sculptural gesture, if anything does, right? Because it's a gesture made sculptural that then becomes a sculptural gesture. I mean, it's 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 everything, right? It's a record of the thing and it's a thing in itself and it's posterity. Yeah. And it's it's and just posterior. and it's <laughs> and posterior. Posterior, posterior. Exactly. It is true <laughs> posterity. It, it it oh my God. But but this is the thing that that for me so characterizes your work is that it's both performative and art and not I don't mean it in the bad way but it's it's hard but it's also easy it's like easy in it's hard once you've been with it a while it gets harder but it's so at first glance accessible like yeah. you did this thing I don't know if you you would probably remember when you where was it at the kitchen where you're in the raincoat yeah eating crackers yeah. <laughs> what what was that called? Can you eat a cracker? <laughs> oh, there you go. There you go. You see, it's accessible, right? It's not called like, you know, Martian visions of exteriority, right? right? It's called Can you eat a cracker? Yeah. In a raincoat at the kitchen. Yeah. I mean, that would be my parentheses added yeah. to it. Yeah. But um <laughs> which I got the idea from the story on the back of the matzah crackers. I I was in a a residency at Triangle Arts and there was an artist, Dominic Mm. Terlizzi, who does like was making these bronze pieces out of crackers. So he had all kinds of crackers. And then then we had this whole conversation about crackers because I'm from Florida and that's, you know, oftentimes how what I use to refer to white people. And so I heard this whole, like, I read this whole story and I was like, wow, you know, I know all of these packages have this, like, I don't even know what they're trying to do with all of the text on the back of a Triscuit, but it's like, it's all kind of like information and it, we get it from white winter weeds and, and this is great for snacking or partying or anytime. Like I was just like, wow, this seems like a lot of text or a box of crackers. And so, um, you know, that was, I mean, that was a whole story, but I, it made me um, investigate the backs of other crackers <laughs> And, you know, put it together as a kind of a manifesto. And then all of the expiration dates, I ended up like researching them because, of course, every day in the 
on the calendar is significant at some point. And so it was all this kind of like, you know, like one of them was like the Battle of Gettysburg and one was like, and it might've been the same day that Oprah, you know, got her first show, like her show, first air date of her syndicated show when it went national. Mm. And, you know, it was just like all these like really wonderful coincidences, but that was playing in the background as I was eating crackers. Right. And then I love, cause I saw the reason I re- remembered the show is I saw one of the reviews online and it says, um, Robinson seems wonderfully out of touch with the times. And I can't think of a better compliment actually <laughs> than that. Do you know what I mean? Cause it's like, you know, cause I mean, I could, someone could be upset hearing that. Oh, I mean, I'm not with the times. It's like, Oh, thank God. I'm not with the times. I've transcended the times. I am timeless. You know? I, you know what? I, yes, exactly. Exactly. And you know, but it's like, it's great when, you know, whatever you're doing elicits that in other people. Cause it's not, it's like, you can't say that you can't say I'm tired. I mean, I, I mean, I do because <laughs> that's just my personality, but like, it can't be historicized in the same way. If I say I'm timeless, you know, it has to be someone who somehow gleans that for themselves from watching and hopefully um, resonating with the, with the work. I mean, it's hard for, for those of us regular people to kind of fully grok what it is to be living as an artist. And you, and part of the reason I'm, I'm so interested in you is you move through life as part of your work, but yeah. you do it in an admirable way, right? Because when I, I went to art school, right? Like, you know, all privileged little white kids did, you know, <laughs> who got interested in the arts, right? Mommy and daddy, they sent me to CalArts. And I go to CalArts and it's like, it felt like half the people at CalArts were trying to figure out how to adopt the persona of an artist more than they were caring about their work, you know? And it got me so fed up. It's, oh, you dress, oh, you dress like an artist so well, but it's like, where's your work? It's like, that doesn't matter. They dress like her, they talk like her, they got their hair cut, they could talk about Warhol. Right. You know, it's like, whatever, where's your friggin' work? You know, and it wasn't there. But it wasn't until I saw you, the way you move through reality that I was like, oh, but there is a place for that too, where the boundary between the work and the way you exist right. goes away. Where did that come from? Or did you just born pop out like that? I think I, I <laughs> definitely think I popped out like that. I didn't know that I I didn't know that I was an artist. Like I, I always knew I was creative. That was always nurtured. But I think mm. that it was really difficult for the people around me who were consistently around me to identify exactly how that was going to be kind of come all together because I like, you know, I was in theater and, and what would happen is that I would make my own costumes for the production. And it was like, people were really appreciative of, of my efforts, but it wasn't like they understood that this was me working out some things um that that was really me creating a um an artistic practice you know mm. nobody identified it and and actually no one identified it until i moved to new york and there were other artists there that like like they took one look at me had one conversation and they're just like you know you're an artist right like i've i'd had 
a number of those kinds of conversations. Like, like I'd be like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if somebody did da, 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 da. And, you know, because I had gone to fashion design school, I had all of these tools to track a creative exploration, you know, like whether it was a sketchbook or, you know, mm. writing or like researching. So I had a lot of those tools already. And I had the most important one, which is that art is anything that makes an idea tangible in some way. Because, you know, growing up, an artist was someone who like made sculpture out of like wood or stone or drew realistically or painted. And I didn't do any of those things. So I just didn't, it didn't even occur to me as an identity that I was actually cultivating through all these adventures. Right. So it's been easy to kind of like, you know, fold it in, like hanging out with my friends could easily turn into a project. Right. And then, I mean, and that's the whole trick is so many people who do the kind of work that might emerge out of hanging out with my friends, mm. they don't then also bring, uh, what would be, be the word, virtuosity mm. to it. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. It's great that the ideas emerge out of life and casual encounter and all that. But then it's like the real artist brings this kind of a rigor to it that's not always obvious. It's not like some Caravaggio painting right. rigor, right. but it's a kind of – I didn't say that word right. See, I didn't really go to art school. Um, I was theater school, <laughs> but it was part of an art school. But you know who I mean, like that big yeah. painter guy. Yep. So you do a project, like my favorite thing. I was going to wait till the end, but where you bring the little white guy around. Yeah. What's it called? There's a white man in my pocket? Yeah, white man in my pocket. Hashtag. But it's these all these photographs and Instagrams of things with this little white man statue doll thing. Yeah. Like look at, looking at posters or gum machines yeah. or whatever. He's like just looking at the world, but he's so little. Or he's just like this. He's wedged in somewhere on your body. Just your little guy. But the amount of thought that spills out of that thing is really insane. Do you know what I mean? How much it makes one, especially, you know, as a white guy relating to a black woman and, and the size difference and, but you kind of nice to him. You're kind of nicer to him than white men were to you at the same time. You know what I mean? There's just so much wonder and stuff in it, but why is that better than if I did it? I sort of the question I'm asking. Where is the rigor and the art and the thought? Why does that work so well? Well, I mean, it is <laughs> absolutely enhanced by my embodiment, you know, like the juxtaposition between what white heteronormative masculinity represents and mm. what you know, black femme queerness, for example, represents, it's like they're meeting each other in this really um, unexpected way because we, we know how to digest a black woman and a white man having like, you know, whatever conflict, you know, we, we kind of have, we have tropes for it. We have theories for it. We, we have a, a, even an entertainment history, you know, through popular culture of the roles that each of these individuals play. But I think when you use the 
white man in my pocket as a talisman to talk about privilege and what does privilege actually actually mean and what does yeah what it, what what is is it plastic material which is what i often posit not just because it's plastic arts like it can be manipulated but like you know the geologists still don't know the half life of plastic and you know we're having this whole conversation about how it's going to be in the ge- geological record and like what's that going to mean you know however many millions of years from now you know i think that that's the same kinds of questions i ask of like all kinds of isms and archies it's a way for for you to have those questions as a witness that i don't have to tell you like i'm sharing it with you because we're having this conversation but so right. often this i can tell that it's happening with the other person because of their reaction to it. Like I I remember I maybe had been carrying Dave in my pocket for like, or somewhere on, it was like really starting to develop as like, I'm like, this actually might last longer than like a month. I mean, it ended up mm. lasting for four years, but like, uh. you know, um, this might go on for like an extended period of time. Early on, I had this experience at this I was house sitting at a friend's house who lives in lived in Sunset Park and there was this Chinese bakery that I would go to all the time. I mean, it had been going they had been living there for years. I had been going there for years. You know, they're usually very like no nonsense. It's just like what do you want? Tea, egg, coffee. The subway was right by it, so I would go to work and so it's like everybody's there. And for some reason, I was like digging in my bag to get some change and to make room. I I put him kind of like absentmindedly on on the counter. And the woman behind the counter who like, I don't think we had ever exchanged any words of English, you know, other than like coffee and tea egg. And she starts Chuckling. I don't, I'll I'll never know what her internal dialogue was about that. But I realized that because obviously, you know, humor plays a big part in the way I think, you know, and subsequently my artwork. And I do think that Dave is funny. And so if I can get the lady at the Chinese bakery who doesn't say more than a few words to me, to have a private moment of of humor, then I probably have something there. And so it really encouraged me to commit even more and see what happens with this thing over time. And, you know, like I I, I one time I was I was at a, a talk at it was like one of these small like liber, private liberal arts colleges like in Massachusetts. You know, it was like one of those colleges, like colleges that will change your life. And it was one of them. And it was a freshman student who actually, you know, organized me to come up there and and give a talk and studio visits and stuff. And we were having dinner, you know, at a place not far away from the campus. And I was carrying Dave by this time, probably within the first year. And I put Dave on the um, 
the table as we were dining and there was a couple, a white couple that was, was dining like, you know, next to us, like probably, you know, middle-aged, probably were somehow involved, like connected to the university. And the man like was asking about that. I don't know if he had read something, but he came over there and he like swooped down and he like, at one point he, he raised his voice. It was like, wow, this little figure. Cause I mean, you know, I, I don't know what I, it doesn't even matter what I said to get him that upset because it really wasn't anything that I said. It was the fact that I, I explained to him, I might've just explained to him this, this exploration. Cause that's what it was at the time. Right. And I already had the name for it in terms of like the, the name of the, of the figure himself and also the project. And I was like, you know, it must, it is certainly that pressure of that assignment that is encouraging this, this response. And so, you know, it reminded me, it continues to remind me, which is, I think why this approach of like, okay, like I'm going to invite you in one, because I like being a host. And then two, because I know that despite all of these isms, we are all having a human experience. Like nobody is avoiding that. Nobody is sidestepping being born. Nobody is sidestepping the the um, tremendous paradox of living and dying at the same time and the um, uncertainty of when that moment is going to happen. Everybody has that. And so I'm not going to let racism and sexism and these hierarchies that are put in place for, you know, reasons of extraction completely distract me from that fact. Right. I get scared, though, you know, because even, you know, here I am doing Team Human, right? <laughs> right. And Team Human itself, me just saying we're all human, is now on the white supremacy, you know, pyramid. Right. You know, it's down near the bottom, but it's part of it. It's, right. you know, along with Rodney King, why can't we all just get along? It's part of, it's considered part of the problem. Mm. And it's hard for me to think of myself as Jew first or, you know, white appearing first. Cause you know, until 1970, we weren't white, but now I get it. We are cause a beam got elected mayor. That's what grandma said was the turning point. Right. You know, so now we're considered white and it's like, Oh, do I have to be white first? Can't, <laughs> can I be human first? Um, and it's hard. I mean, I understand the social justice warrior, critique that I, I got to own up to being the, the, the white man right. in it. But at the same time, I'm, I'm such a universalist. I'm such a, we're all human first. Does the, the, the SJW thing ever feel too strident to you? Or is it something that I should, I you think I got to try to get with? I don't be, you know, you will never, you will never see me at a protest ever. Mm. You just won't. I don't. I. I. I think that there was absolutely, and this is going to be. This is going to be interesting. How this like telegraphs, you know. Um, mm. uh, but it's like I. I think that like you know. I'm looking at you know. You see, growing up, the the images from the civil rights movement. You know, I have parents, and you know, they are. You know, it's not even that they're. I'm adjacent, but they couldn't check out a library book and 
They grew up in segregated schools and so on and so forth. So I'm not unaware or, or naive, you know, and not even willfully naive about the, mm. those things. But I, I, I know that like we are in a different dimension with technology when when the kids got you know attacked by the dogs and with the the um, fire hoses, that's when everybody mm. was like, "No, not the babies!" But they shooting, mm. they bad. <laughs> and yeah. you know what I'm saying? So it's like we have to be um, conscientious of the context of what a protest can do, what that kind of action can do, and I I wonder. Are we missing out on options that um, include uh, um, deceit, spycraft, um, secrecy, bait and switch, uh, glamour? Are we in the in the um, interests of the of the protest and like performing? You know, I have. I've I've told you this before. I have my like five syllogisms, or I don't even know what the word is, but like kind of statements about whiteness, and I also have five statements about blackness. And one of them is blackness is a performance of solidarity. Now, mm. performance is different than an action, a response, an intention. It's 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 you know those things are tied up into it, but a performance is is a distinct thing. And so I think that there's a lot of performance of solidarity through um, actions like, um, or experiences like a protest. And that's not something that I'm interested in, in pursuing. So uh, oftentimes when I'm kind of confronted with like, what do I think about them? Not much, you know? Well, I mean, if someone gets, if someone gets, you know, a child gets shot by cops in the building next door and people go out in the street to say, this is injustice. I mean, that's a protest. I mean, yeah. you'd find yourself swept out in that, wouldn't you? Or you think you'd sit at home? I told you I will not be there because the other thing is that, that like, you're not giving new information. Hmm. We all know that it's an injustice. Even the person who shot the person right. knows that it's an injustice. Right. Whether or not they're trying to get away with it, right. they still know. They right. know. So I think that right. that's a kind of a part of of also like recognizing that humanity is that like for me, it's really important to not create this scenario that I like I present this whatever thing as new information because it is not. So what else could I do? I'm interested in in exploring those things because I've definitely had a reasonable history of like, you know, telling what's what from the bottom to the top. And, and I have found that it is ultimately not beneficial for me. Mm. And then you find out like, okay, it didn't even benefit me and the person already knew. I think I might want to explore other options. This is not to say that you can't protest, but I think that there's the rub that like, 
you can only protest, or if you're not protesting, then you're not participating on the level of change. And that's just simply not true. Right. And you know, I saw this widely criticized Pepsi commercial a few years ago that like had Kylie Jenner, one of the Jenner girls, yeah. whatever. It's like, and it looks like a Kendall. BLM sort of Occupy, yeah. Kendall Jenner, right? It looks like this Occupy protest and they're all going and marching, but everybody's beautiful and sort of tan, but not black, but maybe a little black and this, they're all going around. And then it's like, it's like the scene, it almost looks like Kent State and there's the cops there with the guns or whatever. And then she like hands them a Pepsi and it's okay. And I I looked at that and I know everyone got upset about that commercial. And to me, that commercial was saying, this is performative. There's a performance that she was in some way, not that Pepsi meant it, but they were deconstructing the protest as cool. Yes. And I totally, <laughs> that's how I read it. You know, I just watched Coming to America, the the sequel. and And I thought it was so funny that there's like, like I kind of have this this theory that all entertainment is is symbolic mm. that every all the media that we get whether it's journalism or um like a television series it's all entertainment and entertainment is designed to speak on a a very populous level like even if it's a niche it's trying to capture everybody potential person in that niche. And the really the way that you can do that most successfully is through symbolic language, because then you don't have to necessarily speak the language or be educated. Something just resonates within you because it's like this symbol from way, way back. Like, you know, we talk about like the woo-woo uh, communities, you know, like metaphysical New agey folks, they talk about this law of gender, you know, this kind of bifurcated thing, which is actually all throughout, like, I mean, digital technology is a zero and a one. It's a binary. And so right. I, I think that, like, the fact that Pepsi's um, symbol incorporates, unlike Coca-Cola, for example, incorporates red and blue, these kind of traditional masculine and feminine colors. And the fact that it is echoed in the way our political parties are mascotted. And so like, I think that I don't believe in coincidences as just like a personal liberty. And I thought it was interesting that like in Coming to America 2, the the fast food, the fictional fast, fast food joint McDowell's, who has now found itself in Zamunda, Pepsi is their their official sponsor. So, you mm. know, there was much more that was gained by all of the energy and the froth that was created from it. But I, I do, I do understand this solidarity. You know, that's performance. Just like I think that whiteness is a performance of ignorance, that it's not true ignorance. It's a kind of like an expectation that you don't know. So you don't know. And you, you act according, you know, you perform accordingly, I should say. Right. And you don't even know that's what you're doing. 
And then you fail at it because you can't not, right? All these poor little, all these poor little white supremacist boys, you know, you know, looking for the non-castrated male father figure to lead them to a form of masculinity and whiteness that doesn't exist. Does not exist. Right? And that's why then they who are they gonna get angry at though? The problem is then they get angry at you. Right. You know, right. <laughs> they don't get angry at each other and, themselves. And and, to, and now back to the original point, which is why you will not catch me at a protest mm. is much more effective for me to use clandestine means. I'm learning that that like, you know, one of the things that I think is so interesting about like the conversation about like Harriet Tubman and like, oh, they're going to put her on, which they like, don't do that. Don't even put her on that currency. Don't do that. But I know that's a very um, unpopular opinion, but, mm. but like, you know, people talk about, Harriet Tubman almost exclusively in terms of the underground railroad. And we know that I can't remember what the number of people that she was able to lead to, to freedom um, in, you know, during her trips. But I do know that all of the people were, even if it was through a couple of degrees of separation were already connected to her in some way. Like she wasn't doing this for strangers, for complete strangers. That was not happening. And so there was a, there's going to be a limitation one, because she is one person and two, because, um, you know, the connections can only go so far, but you know, the thing that I'm most intrigued by is her work as a spy for the mm. union forces. Let's say, and I think this would be generous, let's say she led 150 people to freedom. I don't think it's that many, but like, let's say. Mm. Yeah. Think about the ability for, you know, like the union army to, to make some, you know, moves that that helped in their in their quest. Or the fact that one of the, you know, some scholars say, you know, kind of the biggest turn of the tide was the fact that black men could could fight because, you know, as a matter of philosophy, you couldn't have Negroes fighting for, you know what I mean? You would, I mean, you, yeah. who would, who would give them a gun? I mean, I would. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we have gun control for. Right. Is, is mainly exactly. that. <laughs> exactly. And so, you know, those kinds of actions those kinds of commitments towards espionage were much more impactful than her acts as a one person leading these these groups and i think it's no accident that that's not spoken about because it's like oh wait a minute are you suggesting that secrecy could be a tool also that you could develop that, you know, the ism, particularly um, in reference to Black people, conditions you to lay all your cards on the table as like a facet of your identity, that you're authentic, that mm. you're real, when actually you might be best benefited by not revealing all that stuff. 
and and the other part is that like when you hold some things to the vest, you give your opponent, let's for lack of a better term, mm-hmm. an opportunity to reveal more about themselves. As the more information that I get, the more I'm I'm drawn back into the universality of a human experience. Right. You kind of hold back. I mean, it's it's true. It's in your work, obviously, as well. So I'm going to put it out there. I'm not going to quite say what this is. And then you let people reveal who they are by by how they respond to it. And then that folds into the next piece of work that you do. And it's such a liberating feeling then. But you can also, that's the fun thing about your work. I can feel liberated. I can feel ashamed. But that's fun too. It's like, oh, why did I just feel shame? It's like, ooh, she got me. She got me. Now I'm going to have to unfold this thing over a period of weeks, right? Right. But that's good. And no one has to know. This is private now. I get to unfold it myself. Exactly. You know? <laughs> exactly. No one has to know. It's just like, you know, you might not ever say it to me. You might like, and that's that's exactly what I um, you know, of course, you don't know at first as you're developing your practice that that's what you want to do, and that's what you're mm. doing. But like, like you said, so much of 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 the work comes in the doing, mm. you know. And I think that this is because I was a graphic designer. You know, th- there are a lot of artists who are really just graphic designers. You know, they already know what the outcome is. They know what the outcome is for their work, and then they like kind of work, they reverse engineer it. Right. And then they put in this stuff. And I have a sense of what I want to do. And it's not that I'm not, I'm not willy nilly about it, but I'm oftentimes put and also actively putting myself in a position to be taught by the practice to right. like shift my focus to like allow more information to influence what the thing looks like, what the experience is. Well, especially if it's going to take a year or two or three or four. Right. You go in with an intention and a practice, but then we're it's process oriented. It has yes. to be. Yes. You know, you're not making a thing. No. You're <laughs> no. <laughs> you might leave an artifact or two, but Something's happened in time and space, you know, that's that's the work. Yeah. Yeah. And being able to like, you know, fortunately like stuff, you know, enough Mm. to know that I want to have an artifact that, you know, that, that can come through. Cause then, you know, my dealer likes that. (laughs) Right. There's so much going on. You're like stock photography of black people. Oh yes. Project. Yes. Blixel. Yes. Yes. Blixel. Yeah. Like pixel, but Blixel. Mm -hmm. Oh my God. That is fun. Cause it's like on one level, it's just black people like with VR goggles or different things and stuff. But on the other hand, it's like black people are not in stock photography. It's, it's so, it's one of those things. I, I think somebody was saying, says, you know what, can you do the obvious thing that like, I, this was this is a woman who was the former executive director of Art Space in New Haven, and we did mm. a, a project together, and we've maintained a relationship ever since. Helen Cowder, and she was like, you know, it's always a hoot to like see the next thing because it's so obvious. It's almost like, of course, 
And it's not that someone hasn't thought about Blackness in stock imagery, but like I just so happen to have all these other tools and experiences. Like I have been doing, working with graphic design since, you know, I was in middle school and you would actually have like clip art wasn't like, you know, a euphemism. It was like you actually right. out of the book. put it on some graph paper with invisible tape and you photocopied it and you manipulated it that way. So very analog based to when Illustrator and Photoshop didn't even have numbers or CC or anything like that. It was just Photoshop. And so I'm very... I've also like, strangely enough, like worked as the desktop publisher for this, at the time it was the second largest nonprofit group in the state of California. And so I had to make all of their forms and documents in in duplicate, you know, one in English and one in Spanish. Mm. And so I knew and know what the images need to look like for the end user, which would be the graphic designer or the desktop owner. And so that's what I I feel like is is missing in a lot of the stock imagery initiatives that are in the marketplace because it's it's a great idea. And then there's also that that impulse of representation. You know, you want to be seen. So oftentimes a lot of these images look like editorials which I get that impulse, but that's not actually like, there's always representation of exceptionalism in blackness. Like mm. there's lots of images of celebrities, a uh, lots of images, you know, covers of magazines, if you are a star. But if I just wanted to get an image of a black woman who looked like me washing her face or drinking some water, even more elementary, I couldn't find it. I I could, I mean, this, this is right. a search in the last two weeks, I should say. And I, right. I couldn't find like just a black woman of my complexion or darker having a glass of water. Right, not generic. You'll find like Tyra Banks or somebody, right? right? Or Naomi Campbell. Right. But it's oh, like, yes. where's the generic person? Where is the right. everyday person that like looks kind of like your auntie or your cousin or your mother or your grandmother or whatever? Right. Really trying to elevate the vernacular, you know, and see the the material of the mundane, that there's a lot there because that's where most of us reside on a daily basis. Even people like you or I who have been exposed to exceptional people who have some kind of notoriety in the public sphere, most of the people that we know are regular people that people don't yeah. know what they look like. This you you sat next right. to them on the subway, you know, or pass them on the street. And that's what's more significant to you about about the the, the mundane. That it's not who gets on the twenty dollar bill. 
It's who's in the pictures that we're all looking at and identifying with every single day. Who's in the picture of the person opening up their friggin' smartphone? Correct. You know, it's really interesting um, the process because it's taught me a lot about institutions and kind of decolonize the museum. And you know, there's mm. there's a lot of of a clamor um, about this, and you know, I'm trying to be more and more aware of what the institution actually is, because I think that that's a big part of the problem is that people are so, they've made up what the institution is instead of looking to see what it is. Mm. You know, the institution is by its nature not dynamic, but you want it to be dynamic. And I, I, I mean, I just had this experience because I was like, oh, I want this institution to roll with the punches to see, oh, I can't do it like this. Like I, I, I learned this um, with the first three shoots that I had for Blixel is that you can't be like, oh, we're having this thing, um, sign up here. It's very much like get the number, call them up. This is what I'm, it's, and I'm like, I actually know this as a member of the black community. Like I want to have, I'm like, the email is kind of like, and it's so funny. There's so many interesting memes about, about the process of being in a corporate environment as a black person in general, but mm. it gets down to the point of like emails, like emails are so antithetical to the kind of communication that has been nurtured culturally in the black community. But yet the institution has decided this is how we communicate with people. And I'm like, oh, actually, no, if you want to get more diversity then you even have to diversify your modes and methods of communication. Mm. And so it can be really difficult to, to convince the institution of that. And so I'm like, oh, I don't even have to spend my time trying to convince the institution now because I know that there is there's not capability there, but the institution can do other things. And that's what I am I'm learning. Right. And it's so hard for people to hear that because it's not, no, email is not racist. It's not that. But it's like, imagine if like, I'm trying to get volunteers from my picnic and I always make my announcement at my Torah study group. But why is it always Jews who are showing up at my picnics? I tell at my Torah study, I say, you're all invited. Right. Right. <laughs> exactly. It's that. Like, well, it's like you meant well, but think about where you're making that announcement, Douglas. <laughs> right, right. Or like, you know, this so hard. Like, oh, raise your hand. Like that is another thing. It's like, raise your hand. Like I, I had this, I had this um epiphany with my, you know, um, good white girlfriends about invitations. In general, black American people do not offer invitations unless they are like, it's not, you know, like, you know, you say, how are you doing? And somebody says, fine. 
Well, they may or may not be fine. It's just like the social right. convention. The invitation is not a social convention. And it took me a long time to understand that this was like, it wasn't for me to actually hang out with you. Like if, like a lot of my white girlfriends, I'd be like, I would be getting offended. But I didn't know that that was a cultural affect that I, I'm not privy to. Well, that happens to me though, but maybe it's a Jewish thing too. If someone says, oh, you got to come over sometime. Then I come over, ring the bell and they're like, what are you doing here? I'm like, you said to come over sometime. Right. I know that right. I'm not <laughs> saying like, that it you? doesn't occur in others, but I'm like, oh, yeah. right. Like it was a reminder. Yeah. It was a reminder that like even something as cut and dry as that has so much right. nuance. Yeah. You know, and so it's it's up to me because I as the artist have a lot of flexibility. The institution does not. Right. And so I I I'm utilizing my energies I feel like more effectively, more sustainably by not expecting the institution to be able to alter themselves or itself to accommodate these various kinds of communication. That's the whole team human mission is to help people see that we've been institutionalized. We are living in institutions, like being put in the little boxes and it's, it's, not conducive to humanity, to connection, to intimacy, to rapport, to all the stuff that gives us the immune response we need, you know, to actually engage in the struggle. I mean, I think that that is one of the things that, you know, earlier in the conversation, you you mentioned that like you felt your interaction with my work was like decidedly not angry. And I realized that like that is like that institutionalized position for black women and, and justify because I have believe me I have been justifiably angry and have expressed it and I'm like oh wait a minute first of all I'm not really angry I'm actually hurt and that was mm. like an epiphany that shifted everything to realize that I actually was hurt about. A, B, and C, mm. and to to have to decide, I am going to take permission to share that part because I've been conditioned to share the anger. And I was like, oh my gosh, the only thing the anger does is now, now I've told you all good, and now you don't want to have the conversation because I probably hurt your feelings too, right? And so, like, ah. Oh, I, I'm like, that's clever. I'm like, that's what the ism wants to do. It wants to make sure that we're not having the conversation. Right. You know, that we that's just- That's how the ism that, keeps itself ism. Exactly. Yeah. That's how it keeps itself I'm like, damn. <laughs> so I just don't do it anymore. And, and regardless of whether it circles back around to a point of growth- Either way, I'm not further harmed, which is what would happen mm. when I would like go off. So, you know, I'm I I am, I am truly 
you know, to see, to see your book and like, like, you know, I was at the library and I, it's like somehow I, of course I, I, I knew about it, but like to see it on the shelf and be like, I'm going to, I was like, I am T. I actually am, you know, I don't, I am thrilled about the opportunity to embody a black femme individual. There are tremendous joys and challenges that come along with it, especially at this time in this place. But we all got born. Like nobody just like appeared. (laughs) It was a process. (laughs) All of us had the, it might've been shorter for others. It might've been through a canal, might've been through a suture. Doesn't matter. It was still a process that is consistent over eons. And I'm not going to let the ism distract me from that because I find a lot of beauty in that connection. Amen. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously. It's so good to connect with you. It's It's important. It's important. I feel like I found the others. You know, there's a lot of people in you actually uh, that I'm meeting. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> they're not not in a schizophrenic way either. They're mm-hmm. integrated, but there there's just many of you. You know. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, thank you for I think all of you for bringing yourselves to Team Human, and thank you for treating that little white guy in your pocket so beautifully. Why not? You know. Why not? Because <laughs> he just. But I'm supposed to kick him around, you know. Yeah. What I mean? Like you know, Dave. Know. Dave has been to the Caribbean. Dave, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Dave done travel. Dave went to Switzerland. <laughs> Dave went to Berlin. <laughs> Dave, He's living Dave, the life, you know. Dave had a whole. Dave. Dave went to an all black party. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Dave has witnessed, you know, like very like, you know, if if only people who have a larger, more flesh and blood embodiment of Dave could have the experiences of Dave. Mm. Yeah. I think they, they would absolutely be, you know, and it, like I said, he's a he's a talisman. So somehow, hopefully that's like, you know, some juju on some some folks. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're changing a lot of people with Dave, I think. <laughs> Dave Fowler. <laughs> Thanks for being on Team Human. Our guest today was Kenya Robinson. You can find out more about her work and play at privilegeasplastic.com. As always, you can find out more about Kenya and all of our other guests at teamhuman.fm, where you can also become a supporting member of the team. If you'd like an NFT of this episode, please contact your neighborhood crypto exchange agent. Team Human is produced by Josh Chaplin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. <laughs>